Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Welcome to another edition of the Garden Basics podcast. And once again, it has the subtitle, I didn't know that. College horticulture professor, retired Debbie Flower, tackles the question, is it better to fertilize your plants in the morning or in the evening? Or does it even matter? Debbie's going to point out, it really depends on the temperature. It's not celery, it's not lettuce, it's celtus. Also called stem lettuce, asparagus lettuce, or Chinese lettuce, celtus is popular in upscale restaurants for its crispy, flavorful stems and leaves. And now is the time to be growing it. We get all the basics about growing celtus on today's show. Well, it's harvest season for many popular backyard garden fruits and vegetables, but do you know the ideal time for harvesting tomatoes, peppers, squash, melons, eggplants, and more? And then once you take them in the house, where are you going to store them? The refrigerator is probably not the best place. We break them down one by one, and we learn something new every time on Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, and we'll do it again today in episode 36, and we'll do it in under 30 minutes. Let's go. answer your questions here on the Garden Basics podcast. Danny writes in Debbie Flower, our favorite college horticultural professor, and Danny asks about feeding his plants, about fertilizer. He wonders that if at a particular temperature plants don't feed, do they just hydrate? And then then he asks about what time of day is best for feeding the plants, during the day or at night? Or do they need the sun to eat? These are very difficult questions from Danny. Well, he's a thinking guy, and that's cool. I like to see that. He's right that research shows that above 86 degrees Fahrenheit, plants don't use fertilizer, use nutrients. They're just pumping water through their system to keep themselves cool, much like a human would sweat in a very hot situation. He asks if they need sun to eat. Is that the term he used? Um, Plants do need sun to make food. Plants are autotrophs, meaning they feed themselves. Auto means self. And they use nutrients, which are gathered primarily through the roots uh, and some through the from the air, through the stoma to make their own food. And that food would only happens when the plant can collect the uh, energy from the sun or light of some sorts. Uh, so, yes, they do only use nutrients when they are only use them when they're making their food. But they all have different uh, strategies. I mean, they all basically use the same strategy. But depending on where the plant is living and what it's adapted to, it may collect its nutrients at night only uh, or it may uh, do it during only some seasons. But when we fertilize, uh, we are just putting nutrients into the growing media. That growing media, in most cases, is the soil outdoors. It would, can be the, the soilless mix in a container you have in the house or a greenhouse or whatever. Or it can be the uh, liquid solution that you are uh, using in your hydroponic system. Whatever the roots are growing in, that is the media I'm talking about. And that's where the nutrients need to be uh, that the plant will then absorb. We can apply those nutrients at pretty much any time of day or night and pretty much any temperature with a caveat of really applying above 86 degrees 
can mess up the plant's ability to absorb water. So we really want to apply the nutrients when the, when it's cooler. But day or night, it doesn't matter. All we're doing is loading the root zone with the nutrients that the plant then will collect when it's ready to make its own food. If you're growing outdoors in the soil, you really, in most cases, only need to be applying nitrogen. And if you're using lots of mulch, you may not even need to apply uh, any synthetic nitrogen at all. Uh, organic matter can apply all that you need. But the source of the nutrients for the plant is the growing media. The growing media, uh, we put the nutrients in, uh, or nature does, by putting, you know, dropping leaves, creating a natural compost below the plant, whatever, put it in the growing media, and then the plant will take that up when the plant needs it. The one caveat is it's recommended we not fertilize at very high temperatures, let's say above 86 degrees. Uh, if we get any on the leaves of the plant, we can cause burning there. Uh, if we apply too much fertilizer at any time, we can cause burning because the plant only has a limited ability to choose what it absorbs. If the If the growing media is just completely full of nutrients and it's above 86 degrees and the plant is trying to just pump water through itself, it may not be able to get just water if there's too much nutrient in that root zone. Too much or applying it, those are the reasons we don't apply when temperatures are very high. We, we want the plant to be able to get just water to keep itself cool. Is this true for both synthetic and organic-based fertilizers? Absolutely. Uh, synthetic fertilizers are, it's, are very pure for the nutrient you're applying, and the, we can very easily apply more than the plant can use, and so we can very easily cause burn, fertilizer burn. I, I can remember burning my corn with uh, ammonium sulfate in a garden I had many decades ago. When we apply organic fertilizers, organic fertilizers tend to be much have much lower concentration of nutrients in them, and they are uh, in large molecular sizes and have to be broken down by natural processes before the plant can get them. So it's a slow release. It happens over time. It happens with uh, activity of weather and, and microorganisms and macroorganisms like worms that break down that organic material and release those nutrients more slowly. So we tend to be safer applying the organic ones we tend to have less fertilizer burning with organic ones. The question people may have, if there's this cutoff point of 86 degrees where you do not fertilize plants if the temperature is over 86 degrees, does it matter if you do it earlier in the morning or is it better to fertilize with declining temperatures when the, when the temperatures start coming down in late afternoon or early evening? Is that a better time to fertilize than, say, early in the morning? I can't tell you definitively based on any kind of research whether one is better than the other. You always want to apply fertilizers, especially organic fertilizers I would put down at any time, even 86 degrees or above, because they are not providing a huge quantity of the kinds of fertilizer molecules that will burn the plant. They're providing very little of that, and they're providing it as a steady stream over long periods of time. If I were using synthetic fertilizers, meaning basically the kinds you buy in a box that has a, has some high numbers on the front, 10, 10, 10 maybe, and you dissolve it in your watering can and go around and water the plants, that I would apply probably in the morning personally, but I don't have any research that says the morning is better than the evening. 
You just have to be very careful about how much you apply. Too much throws off a lot of chemical and biological things in the soil, and you're doing more damage than good. Now, earlier in your testimony, Professor Flower, you stated (laughs) that one should not apply either synthetic or organic fertilizers if the temperature is above 86. Now you're just saying it's okay to fertilize with organic fertilizers if the temperature is over 86. Which is it? And where were you on the night when the plants were being fed? I, um, I, okay, in the beginning, I, I think I just said don't apply fertilizer in general. But I, if, if, when I'm saying organic fertilizer, I'm thinking of things like, like compost and uh, manures, uh, dry manures, not fresh manures. Uh, fresh manures have a lot of uh, high concentration. So I guess the, the cutoff line is not organic versus synthetic. It's the analysis or the quantity of the nutrient that is in that fertilizer. If it's high, above 5%, I wouldn't apply it above 86 degrees ever. If it's low, 1% or below, I I wouldn't have any qualms about applying it. And the problem with organic fertilizers, well, if you buy them in a bottle like fish emulsion or something, you do get the analysis listed on the bottle. If you're bringing in compost or mulch, you don't know how much, or even manures, uh, even manures that have dried out and sat in the in the chicken coop. My mother did that. She brought home the the chicken manure that had been in her father's chicken coops for decades. Was very dry, but was inside the chicken coop. Brought it home, put it on the garden, and killed everything immediately. So it really has to do with the concentration of it's typically nitrogen, but concentration of nutrients in that fertilizer. If they're very high concentration, don't apply them above 86 degrees. They're very low. You can apply them anytime because it will take, they're so mild that they're not going to cause uh, osmotic problems or burning on the plant. So I guess the uh, advice we would have for anybody raising chickens, if you want to use chicken manure uh, in your garden, is to let it sit in a pile for a few months. Yeah, it's better to put it into a compost pile that contains other things. Chicken manure can really burn things. It can be what we call hot, a hot fertilizer. Hot meaning very high in in uh, nutrition and so high that it, it burns. The, the form of a nutrient that the plant can take in is a salt. And salt means it's dissolvable in water and can move to the plant in water. And it can we eat table salt. Table salt dissolves in water. And that can throw off the plant's ability to absorb water. And that's when we have burn in the plant. Boy, I'm really making it muddier and muddier, aren't I? <laughs> I'd learned this before, but uh, if we're putting on large quantities of mulch, we don't need to apply any fertilizer at all because the amount of nitrogen in that is ultimately enough. Yeah, Ed Live has been saying that for years. Is basically, hey, I just mulch my fruit trees. I don't fertilize them. <laughs> right, right. Do you want to end this piece? <laughs> Do you want to say? Yeah, I guess I should. <laughs> We learned a lot about fertilization today from Professor Debbie Flower. Debbie, thanks for a few minutes of your time. You're welcome. I hope it's uh, clearer than mud. Um, But thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. And you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. We have links to all our social media outlets, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, a link to the FarmerFred.com website. That's where you can find out more information about the radio shows. You remember radio, right? Now, if the place where you access the podcast doesn't have that information, you can find it all at our home podcaster, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout.com. Just look for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. There's a garden author out there with a book, and I, I love his philosophy. He says, treat your vegetable garden as your own private fantasy supermarket. What a great idea. Always trying something new to eat and growing some beautiful crops that you can eat. Some of them are ornamental edibles. Some of them are just things you've never tried yet. You ought to check him out in his new book, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Garden. We're talking with Matt Mattis. He's an American visual designer artist, horticulturist, and futurist. He's a third-generation gardener on his family property back in Massachusetts, and he has a very popular gardening blog that's won many awards called Growing With Plants, and you can find out more about that at his website, growingwithplants.com. And Matt, this is a beautiful book that you've put together here, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening, and what was your inspiration for it? Well, my inspiration is it's what I do every day naturally. I mean, Obviously, I think from the look of the book, you can tell I w I'm a visual designer. I was a creative director at Hasbro Toy Company for 28 years. Graphic design, visual design, photography is important to me. But through all that time, I was a not a closet gardener. I was a pretty serious, geeky gardener. And what is gardening like in Massachusetts? Out here, it's, 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 it's a 12-month-a-year avocation. Yeah, it is for you. We're certainly in the four-season realm. Which, you know, sadly for, for you folks is how most garden books are written, right? They're, right. They're written for England or New England, it seems. But um, I say your gardening is like my greenhouse. I am fortunate enough to have a glass greenhouse. And I was looking at the high and low temperatures in Sacramento area and San Joaquin. And I'm like, that's my greenhouse. I can I can grow camellias in my greenhouse, but I can't outside. <laughs> you, okay. All right. And, <laughs> and do you have any citrus in your greenhouse? I have plenty of citrus in my greenhouse. We're harvesting Meyer lemons right now. How big is this greenhouse? It's 30 feet by 24 feet, and it's 16 feet tall. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm so jealous. It's, uh, it's my little bit of California here where it's, you know, minus six degrees last night. Let's talk about some of the cool season vegetable crops that you profile in your book, Mastering the Art of Vegetable Garden. And you've got some rather unusual ones in there that people may have not heard of. Like Celtus, C-E-L-T-U-C-E, -E, not to be confused with the botanical name for a hackberry tree. <laughs> Correct. It's spelled slightly differently. Well, Celtus is really a lettuce. It's really romaine lettuce and basically a Chinese vegetable. It, it, if you look at the history of lettuce, it, it started in, in the Rome area of Italy and it's split in two. And, and the head lettuce that we are familiar with or loose leaf lettuce moved sort of through Europe and it was adopted through Europe. Again, if you look at history, the, the romaine type of lettuce or stem lettuce moved into Asia. You know, for 3,000 years, that's where it remained 
eaten as a stem vegetable. Uh, the leaves are used too, but the, the tall stalk of, let's say, if you cut a romaine open, you know that bitter stalk. It, uh, that's the part that the Chinese loved to eat for you know hundreds of years. And I ran across it again. I remember it as a child appearing in like the Burpee catalog, 60s and 70s, as a novelty. Never, ever thought of growing it basically the history of it it you know was not they tried to market it in the turn of the century in california as asparagus lettuce but only within asian communities was it grown you know no one would know how to grow it or cook with it you mentioned in your book that it's also called stem lettuce how do you how do you prepare it to eat well it's very easy to grow in fact if you can't grow lettuce well you could probably grow stem lettuce well because it looks very much like romaine lettuce that went to seed so if you're a bit of a lazy gardener try celtus or stem lettuce. Um, it grows exactly like romaine. And in fact, it looks like romaine lettuce in, when it's young. And only when it starts to warm up outside. So in your area, that's probably, you know, April or so, it'll then the stalk will elongate. It's maybe an inch wide or inch and a half, two inches wide with some varieties. And uh, you peel the leaves off. You pull it right out of the ground. You pull the leaves off. You peel it as you would asparagus. Um, let's say the woodier end of asparagus. But stem lettuce is very crispy. It's, it's beautiful. If, you, if there's a Shetswan restaurant around, they most likely would have it on the menu or a good Asian market. It's showing up here in the Northeast in, in large um, Asian supermarkets now. How tall does it get? It gets about two or three feet tall. Pretty massive and pretty beautiful in the garden. I was fortunate to go to Yunnan this summer on a plant expedition into Western China and Tibet, and we saw these fields of red leaves and we didn't know what they were and we asked our jeep drivers to stop so we can go look and it was celtus and in researching celtus i i discovered that the burpee company acquired celtus from an explorer who went to yunnan in the 1920s and brought the seeds back of stem lettuce and they're the ones burpee is the one who branded it celtus for celery lettuce and it won't bolt in the summertime it'll bolt eventually if you keep it if you let it go to seed I've actually, in here, I've never let it go to seed. It seems to elongate um, as if a lettuce going to seed, but I've never seen flower buds form on the end. I think we'd have to have a longer season. So maybe in California it would go to seed, but and before then it would probably, the stem would probably split. If there's a problem with it here, it's that we get, uh, you know, summer thunderstorms and it could be dry for two weeks and then we get this drenching rain and the stem will split. I don't think you would have that problem there, but over irrigated after a dry period. The stem is crispy and crunchy and has a lot of water in it. So it's like a water chestnut. It's so beautiful when it's sliced. It looks like a piece of jade. Crispy and it really doesn't have a flavor. It's more of a texture thing. Even when it's cooked, it's a crunch factor. You mentioned that it's easy to grow from seed when soil temperatures are cool. So it sounds like the ideal uh, cool season crop that you could put in the ground from seed here in California, even in January and February. Absolutely. If you're growing lettuce, you can grow celtus because botanically it's the same plant. It's just a subspecies of lettuce. So if you can germinate lettuce and, you know, lettuce likes to germinate cool, you know, we'd say 35 to 45 degrees for the highest germination levels. If your soil temperature is, you know, anywhere between the high 30s and 50, it should germinate fine. It transplants well, too, which is helpful. So you can start it indoors and then move it outside Absolutely. I would start it cool, though, indoors. I um, I germinate it in my greenhouse, which, like I said, is the temperature of California, <laughs> your part of California. <laughs> what are some of your favorite Celtus varieties to grow? 
sadly in the U.S. there's only really one variety called Spring Tower that you can get from any of the, the few seed companies that carry it. But I know this year in Baker Creek, they're offering a red leaf variety, which I'm guessing is the same one that we saw in Asia. I brought some seeds back and sent two more varieties to them to see if they want to propagate it. But it's a uh, there's a thick stem variety that is grown somewhere in the U.S. I'm not sure where because it shows up at the Asian market. It's almost three inches in diameter. But uh, Spring Tower is the most common one. I think maybe a few C. Kellogg's may have red stem, which is a red variety. The stem isn't red on the inside. It's only a red tint on the outside, like uh, a red leaf lattice. The name of the book is Mastering the Art of Vegetable Gardening. It's by Matt Mattis, and Matt uh, profiles many of your favorite vegetables in the book, uh, such as onions, garlic, asparagus, rhubarb, artichokes, cabbage, cauliflower, beets, Swiss chard, the lettuces, carrots, beans, okra, and, of course, the standards, tomatoes and peppers, as well as cucumbers and squash. It's really a beautiful book, well-written, And like I say, his philosophy is outstanding. Treat your vegetable garden as your own private fantasy supermarket. And check out his blog as well. Growingwithplants.com is where you will find it. Growingwithplants.com. And the name of the blog is Growing With Plants. Matt Mattis, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you, Fred. gardeners are experts at planting and raising vegetables in the backyard garden. However, figuring out the best time to harvest those crops with optimum flavor and nutrition can be a guessing game. In addition, few gardeners know the best way to store those fresh veggies after they've been picked. Here are some tips from the Home Garden Seed Association and the UC Davis Department of Post-Harvest Technology. For tomatoes, in most cases, should be slightly soft when squeezed before picking and fully colored, but there are exceptions. Large heirloom tomatoes can be prone to cracking, and they are actually best picked before they have completely turned color. They'll continue to ripen after harvest. Store tomatoes on the kitchen counter, out of direct light and heat, in a vented plastic bowl or a perforated plastic bag. Tomatoes shouldn't be in the refrigerator. They won't ripen there, and they'll lose their flavor. If you're picking a lot of green beans, pick them when they're long, slender, and crisp before the seeds form lumps in the pods. Pick them often as beans can become tough and stringy on the vine. Store in the refrigerator in perforated plastic bags in the produce drawers, but you have to use them within a few days. Don't mix any fruits with vegetables in the same refrigerator drawer. The ethylene gas produced by the fruits is detrimental to the quality of nearby vegetables. And as you've probably figured out by now, summer squash is best picked when it's small. Small is better, especially when it comes to zucchini and yellow crookneck squash. They're at their most tender when no bigger than four to six inches. Patty pan squash is best picked when only three inches or smaller, and you want to store those in the refrigerator. What about peppers? Well, let them turn to their mature color on the plant, and that color might be red or yellow or orange. When it has those colors, it has maximum flavor. But check them daily as peppers deteriorate very quickly after reaching maturity. There's nothing wrong with picking and eating them when green, though. But use your clippers. Don't pull them off the plant. And they're best clipped when they're firm and full-sized. Room temperature storage is best. However, peppers, cucumbers, and eggplant can be kept in the refrigerator for one to three days, but you have to use them soon after removal from the refrigerator. 
What about melons? Man, oh man, I bet you've heard the stories about how to tell if there's a ripe melon. Well, forget about thumping the melon to determine ripeness. Watermelons turn a dull color when ripe, and the tendril that's closest to the fruit, it should be shriveling. For cantaloupes, the well-defined netting will turn green to tan. Honeydews develop a yellow blush on their ivory-colored rinds. And you want to store melons at room temperature. For eggplants, look for the nice reflective sheen when they're at their peak of readiness. Size and color are not necessarily indicators of maturity. As eggplants get older, the skins get tough and dull and the flesh gets bitter, so you want to harvest eggplants as soon as they achieve that smooth, glossy finish. Eggplants last the longest, which is only a few days really, when stored at room temperatures of 50 to 55 degrees. Now, who has a room right now in the summertime at 50 to 55 degrees? Well, good for you if you have a root cellar, but for the rest of us, well, don't put them in the refrigerator though. Just find a cool spot on the kitchen counter. And you want to avoid storing eggplant around any fruits that release ethylene gas, and that's apples, bananas, melons, and yes, tomatoes too. Now what about winter squash? Now there's a confusing term. Winter squash, as you may know, is planted around May, maybe June, but it's not harvested until wintertime. Winter squash is sweetest when fully mature. It could be mid-fall to winter. When it's ripe, the rind becomes hard and is no longer shiny. The way to test winter squash for readiness Test it with your fingernail. If it can be scratched but not punctured, it's mature. And then cut the squash with the pruners, leaving a short handle, and let it cure in a warm space for 10 days before storing it in a cool, dry place. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, hey Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, would you please? Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.